0: Hey
1: Azariah, long time, how are you?
2: Yeah, I'm good Winnie. Oh my goodness, we're back. G-Race G-Race is back. Woohoo! How exciting. And guess what? We're going to be back here in your ears month after month. Isn't that great? Hey. So, how are things with you, Winnie?
1: You know, we're okay. I maybe, I don't know what's happening in the UK, but in, I'm in New York, and we keep going up and down with this virus, and I have to. Say it, it it influences everything, right? Um, that and frankly, in our country, people keep getting shot by the police. So it's it's been it's been it's been a tough Gosh. time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. How about you? Well, as I speak to you, I'm in Manchester. The sun is shining, um, and I think with the with the good weather it kind of it generates some, some good vibes so uh, I'm pretty feeling pretty good I had um, uh, restrictions beginning to lift where we are and so I had an alfresco um, what we call over here bacon butty or bacon balm so I had that with a cup of tea with two sugars and sat outside of a cafe today that was great so Winnie we are talking today to one of my friends um, She is called Chinna MacDonald. She is Head of Engagement and Communications at Christian Aid. She is a broadcaster. People pull her in for all sorts. In fact, one of the things that she pulled me on, no idea why I was there, she was in a consultation at number 10 Downing Street, where our Prime Minister lives. And somehow she got me on the guest list for that, which was absolutely remarkable I had no idea why I was there from start to finish but it was lovely to watch her in action um so uh, do you know about her
1: you know I'm looking forward to this so looking forward to this I um I've read her book and I you know follow her on social media and I think I think we've met in person maybe once but at Greenbelt and things are very very busy um but I am an admirer she's remarkable I think she's in the in the waiting room let's um let's start the conversation
2: Uh, wonderful come on in Hello. Hello. Chiney.
0: <laughs> hey, how you doing? Good, thank you. Lovely to see you good looking people.
2: Hey, well, hey, it takes one to know a couple. Yes, it it's really does. It's a very
1: good looking <laughs> screen. It really, it's a lot.
2: Yeah. Sorry, listeners. You just can't see what a stunning display of humanity is is on offer on Zoom right now. Um, but uh, Chine, good to see you, Chine. We often have a question that we like to uh, to ask our guests, and that question is, "What is home for you?"
0: So, um, for me, it is a. Complicated question that could obviously be answered in lots of different ways, especially when you are um, an immigrant like me. So um, for me, I was born in Nigeria and moved to the UK when I was four years old. Um, And for quite a lot of my younger years, into my teenage years, maybe my early 20s, I feel like I had spent a lot of my time trying to show that the UK was definitely home and I was definitely British and I was definitely not from somewhere else. Um, And I remember going um, back to Nigeria on holidays and it felt like this really alien place. Um, It was hot and um, I spoke differently. Um, Nigerians would take the mick out of my Uyubo um, accent, uh, which is a white person's accent. Um, It definitely felt like an other place and didn't feel like home. Um, but there was something that happened i think for me in my um once i went to university and probably came to the understanding that i was definitely not british um, or i could never be accepted wholeheartedly into british um, society um and some of that is having gone to to cambridge university and experiencing that kind of definite othering there. And I think after that, um I almost kind of rebelled against the kind of Britishness and wanted to get much more involved in understanding my own culture. I'm Igbo from the southeast of Nigeria. Um learning about my culture, my language, my family history. And I think after that, um every time I thereafter arrived in Nigeria, there was like this moment touching down in the plane where it felt like this is home, like this is home um, in a way that the UK isn't. I would say, however, um, that there is a special place, a physical place um, where I also have that sense of exhale. And that is at Greenbelt Festival, um, which is a place, um, a kind of an arts faith and justice festival that takes place in the UK every summer. Um, and it's a very progressive um faith space um and we um I had never heard of Greenbelt um I'd grown up in evangelical churches all my life um and I remember I went to Greenbelt first for the first time ten years ago after having uh, very much felt like you know alien within evangelical churches after I started to doubt and question things and arriving at Greenbelt 10 years ago, and I have been every year um, since that, Greenbelt, the Greenbelt space feels like home, which is this space where people of faith and people not of faith um, have this kind of coming together, which is really magical, I think, um, of this space in which all of us are welcome and there is something just wonderful about that place and to me Greenbelt feels like home.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. And Winnie, I'm curious as to um, what do you resonate in what Chinya was sharing? Have you had um, similar experiences yourself?
1: So a, a bunch of that. I didn't want to interrupt you. One is I came, my parents are from India and I came to the U.S. I was born in the U.S. and we went, I went back and I came back at four. And I think it's a really interesting time to begin like, um, because you're about to start school. Um, but I think we, um, I think we met at Greenbelt.
0: Yeah, And
1: and I'm not from the UK, so it it felt, frankly, very foreign and far away to me. And I had a very similar experience of, oh, these are my people. They might not speak my language, but these are my people, which has, for me, so much to do with faith, even maybe more than migration and racial identity, because it's not a terribly diverse place, um, but something about how faith is being explored there. Is that similar for you, or is it something else?
0: Oh, it's absolutely that. So, yeah, Greenbelt is not a racially... a uh, ethnically diverse place or even class-wise either but it is definitely a space where um you know it's okay to question things and to be angry about certain things about our faith but also um, at the heart of it there is this there is this something that we can't explain this kind of an um, otherworldly sense of what the kingdom of god is supposed to be like that i have only ever felt at greenbelt and it's because of that kind of radical welcome and that kind of um the kind of feeding of the heart mind and soul which I find there which I love
1: is that something that you find also in your parish life? do you find that in churches or have you found, experienced that
0: uh, i've got like a complicated oh, it's not that complicated it's probably a trad- <laughs> probably lots of people have this story lots of um, old millennial people have this story where i um I grew up in uh, predominantly evangelical churches um uh, places that didn't have women as leaders, for example, um, a very, um, very set definition of what the Christian faith was. Great music, great worship. Things were done excellently. Everything was polished. There was a definite sense of, um, yeah, I guess excellence in those spaces. But the church I go to, <laughs> the church I go to now, um, is it's called the Bear church in Southeast London and um, I, I remember the first time I walked into that church and um, I'm now on the leadership team but I've been in that church for five or six years and I walked into the church and I felt oh this this is home um, and it was because it was chaos <laughs> and completely messy not polished at all uh, kids running around screaming Um, so for me churches that's where I that's the church spaces that I thrive in sometimes I miss the kind of you know know, the kind of sense of like you know amazing worship music I used to be in the worship band at my old churches and and we would have three hour rehearsals in the week and then we'd rehearse for two hours before um, the Sunday morning service so the music was perfect Um, but I've kind of found value um, in recent years in the imperfection and the messiness, which I love.
2: Um, You are uh, someone who is a communicator, an influencer, and a writer. I remember meeting you and talking about your first book, which was thinking about um, being black and being beautiful, and that was so helpful for me um, helping with with my daughter and and for me to to read through this and um, you have uh, you know you've, you've been developing and thinking and so you've looked at at how one can be black and beautiful and now you're challenging a notion that God isn't a white man and I just think that's that's really fascinating I remember dealing with some internalized racism and Talk, sitting in front of a white priest sitting on a couch and he said God isn't a white man sitting on a cloud with a beard. This priest was a white man with a beard <laughs> and he said the more of yourself that you can access and the heritage that you can appreciate the more of God we will be able to see and so I'm curious as to the journey from book one to book two.
0: So my first book um, is called Am I Beautiful and really that book isn't supposed to be about race. Um, It was supposed to be about the experience of Christian women um, uh, and our sense of our body image. And so it was really a challenge to the church around having, you know, just a better view of women's bodies so that women felt um, better about themselves and their own self-esteem. In writing that book, um, I realised that quite a lot of my experience um, or my understanding or feelings about my body were wrapped up in race, not just gender. So some of the experience that I talk about. So when I was four years old, and so having just um, arrived, when I was five years old, having arrived recently from uh, Nigeria, I went to school in South East London um, in the 80s. There weren't many uh, black children. Um, and I remember distinctly, our teacher asked us to draw a self-portrait Um, And I remember picking up a yellow pencil and drawing my long, um, straight yellow hair and taking a light blue pencil and doing my eyes, taking a pink pencil and colouring in my pink rosy cheeks. Um, And I remember my friend looking over at my drawing and saying, that's not you. And in that moment, I was like, no, that isn't me. I don't know why I drew myself like that but I'm assuming it's because that's what everyone else looked like and that's what I wanted to look like and it's around that age that um, children start to get this understanding of what they look like as distinct from um, other people and I remember not just realising that that wasn't me but remembering or feeling like I was really disappointed that that wasn't me and almost this sense of ugliness um, or not looking like the Disney princesses that I wanted to look like. Um, so for me, from a very young age, I had this sense of yeah, blackness as not being held up as the kind of ideal beauty standard.
1: Well, and I think there's, a, there's something right that, that women are supposed to think about beauty, right? And, and aspire to it. And Christian women are supposed to approach that in a very particular, unaffected, modest, natural way. And yet, right, that's not possible if you're not a white it's white and my awareness around that um so i lived in india for a short time and came back at four i didn't speak english when i came back so i remember watching in our nursery school and being very interested in and noticing the difference of whiteness um so i i remember being aware of it and noticing it um and in a very in a in a community frankly, very articulate about that because Indians are so exoticized in the U.S. as a very particular kind of beauty that people commented on my mother's beauty if we went outside, you know, that people, that she, my mother was what a beautiful person was in my mind. Um, and so I thought I was okay. Like I had, you know, I kind of got it. as a feminist about it, kind of understood um, how race worked in this. But I remember the day in my 30s, looking in the mirror in my 30s, and realizing i didn't look it wasn't that I was just modest that I didn't look at mirrors very often that I didn't think a lot about what I looked like, I could barely make myself look at myself yeah. that it was it was hard for me to look at the the color of my skin of my lips of my eyes um the shadows under my eyes, and that these these colors were wrong and i i couldn't I looked at a distance or I created an image for a photo but i I literally could barely bear to look at the at myself in the mirror, which i mean it opened up. So many things, but is is really about you're not supposed to look like this. Like this isn't a face um, that's a Christian, right? This isn't a face that's good that is whole.
2: Wow, gosh, thank you for sharing that, Winnie. Chin, I remember in terms of your book, Am I Beautiful? You told me a really interesting story about the cover. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
0: I really don't like the cover of my of the Am I Beautiful book, but we'll we'll move on. Um, we had. Um, At one point in the kind of selecting what the cover would look like, I really loved this image, this photograph of this really striking white woman with red, lovely, beautiful, curly hair and freckles. Um, And I, I loved that and I wanted that to be the cover of the book. But the publishers said... They wanted a uh, an image of me on the book, like a photo of me, like kind of like I don't know if anyone knows Joyce Meyer, but like it felt to me like it was like I didn't want myself on the book, and partly because if I, if I saw myself on the cover of the book, or if others saw me on the cover of the book, that white women wouldn't be buying that book. It would be for black women only, and because black women associate with black women and potentially white women don't see themselves in any way represented in, in black women. So I felt like it was going to completely put people off.
1: I, I think that's so interesting, the idea of uh, the market, the, the marketing issue underneath what a cover is, like who who a text is for. Uh, one, I think one of the interesting um, phenomena, something that's interesting that's happening the last couple of years, and I've noticed this with some of my colleagues, is that people are writing confessionally about the experience of being black and brown, um, in a way that, um, I think is such a gift to the larger society. Kind of in, it's like the, the social media view, an insider conversation. Um, and it would, I I, I don't know what your publisher was trying to accomplish. You know, I don't know how you think about that. Um, but, but how, how, how do you, I mean, and, and your current book as well is, is, is so honest in ways that feel like, um, I I have these moments of reading books like this, and yours is very good in this way, of I can't believe she told everybody this. Like, I know this, we know that, we talk about this privately, but she just told everybody. Um, What kind of, have you had response to that? Or how does that, how did that, how do you do that? How does that feel?
0: So I I trained as a journalist, right? So, um, and for me, journalism, when I was training, was about, all about taking yourself out of the story so you are an objective observer. And I noticed actually the difference between British journalists um, and American journalists. I used to find when I went to America, I'd, I'd be like, whoa, 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 they're, they're talking, they're American journalists, like they're talking about themselves, that's so, oh. Um And I don't, I don't know what happened. Um, maybe it's just reading other similar types of books, but I now understand the power of the personal story in order to communicate and to make change. So this for me is the natural way in which I write. I want to connect with people and the way that I feel like I can connect with people is by telling human stories and being vulnerable. Um, But I, sometimes I feel like I've just gone into a, a trance and I've written something and then it's in a book and then I'm terrified because I feel, I also am like, I cannot believe that I have written that in a book. And often when I write articles um, in the media or I share personal stories, often people's response is, wow, thank you so much for sharing that, for being so vulnerable. And I realise that maybe maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe I've just, maybe it's just other people don't do that. Why am I doing that? Um, but I, I feel like it's powerful. Um, but I also do feel like it's there will get to a point where I am tired of it or I find it too painful um, to have too much of myself out there because I feel like I'm a, I tend to overshare. <laughs> That's just in my, per- my personal life um, and in my writing as well. But we'll see how, we'll see how it goes.
1: And all of a sudden, it's become very impressive that James Cohen was our professor. When I was in school, people were not so positive about that. Um, but he would tell all of us, Um, you you have to start with your personal story. And I have to say, very sort of similar to your story of training, I had done my undergraduate work in theology and biblical studies, I knew how to do it. Um, I did not know how to bring my story in. I never figured it out in three years. I couldn't figure it out. And I couldn't figure out how to tell my story, which I figured out in my 30s, outside of the framework of how people wanted to tell my story. I didn't like those categories. I didn't like the hierarchies. It didn't actually feel true to me but I couldn't find the place to tell it. And I think that's um, what's very, one of the things that's very, very powerful about how you're writing is that you're, it's it's not within the frameworks that we've been told are the ones that must must be. You are very authentically telling a story from exactly, you know, it seems to me, from the location is very distinctive. Um, I find it very moving.
2: Yeah, it really is fantastic. And uh, Chinny, we're beginning to talk about your second book, but I'd love to give you the opportunity to tell us. Um, a little bit about uh, what your book is, the title, and what was the spark uh, for for the book coming?
0: So the book is called God is Not a White Man and Other Revelations. Um, and for me, I guess the, um, it links back to that story of stories. So um, I studied theology at Cambridge University and I used to write my theological essays like a journalist. So I would say, this guy thinks this, this old white guy thinks that, Um, and present it like a journalistic argument Um, and my one of my professors said you write like a journalist so I took like I took it like a compliment Um, and he was like no no that's not that's not a compliment you need to like think for yourself like what what do these texts mean and how do you interpret and I think there's something in that for me in that as a Christian or someone who believes in God God can only be experienced through our individual experiences god is not an objective thing that exists here that we all have the same kind of view view of so for me as a black woman um living in 2021 who is heterosexual and a mother and middle class my um, understanding or my um revelations and experiences about who god is are important too they're just as important as a white European male in his 60s. But the problem is, if you look at the past, you know, through centuries of theology, um, you would think that God is experienced only through the white male experience. So part of my book is around exploring that and unpacking that. Part of it is around the um, the literal depictions of God that I have in my head, which is of God as a white man God the Father as a white man with a big white beard, Jesus as a uh, a white guy with blue eyes and brown wavy hair because that's the picture of Jesus and God that I've seen my whole life. Um, but that is obviously not what God looks like. And um, so how can I um, how can we unlearn that what does that say for to me as a black woman about myself being made in the image of God? as well as um, a white man. So part of it is around that, but then it moves on to the kind of wider story, which is God is not a white man, but also the double meaning is that white men are also not gods. So the kind of story of white supremacy as pervasive throughout every sector of society, so from um, education, uh, whiteness and feminism, interracial marriage, um, which I talk about, and the brutalization of black bodies, um, as well as uh, the church's story about who God is. So that is what I explore in the book.
2: So powerful. As you know, I, I wrote a book last year, and what's been fascinating is that there's been relatively little pushback from that, but just in the last couple of weeks, I had a little bit of pushback, and I just want to quickly tell you this story and, um, based on what we've been talking about. So uh, one of, uh, a senior leader in the church, received an email and this email said uh, I want to speak about this ADA France Williams um, who is doing a conference on critical whiteness and says you can't be white and be a Christian. Is this what's happening in the Church of England that its priests are you know criticizing white people and uh, and so he went on to um, to say some more in this email and it's quite a a surprise to me. One, I'm not involved in the conference. Two, it was a quote from Ghost Ship. Three, it was a quote from an interview I had with Winnie. Four, it was from an interview I had with Winnie talking about a friend of hers, Kelly Brown Douglas. And uh, <laughs> uh, But all of a sudden I felt exposed that this person had read this quote, thought I was a speaker and that I was criticising him for being uh, racially and ethically white. And I, I'm just wondering, how do you differentiate and, uh, between being white and whiteness? Because people come back at me and say, well, you know, you can, people are all different colors and, you know, have prejudice. Uh, what's, what's the big deal?
1: Well, actually, I'll, I'll jump into that. Uh, uh, so um, I, Kelly and I uh, had a conversation once about kind of do we explain these things? You know, like, do we do we talk about um, this category? And of course, she does in her book. Um, and it's an ongoing conversation that it, um, we've we've had about how much explaining do you do. And I think that, so I have a, a, one, I feel terrible about that, but story of my life, that I have a really good line that's from someone else but somebody else gets credit or harm. Story of my life. I should have told you that in advance. Um, but that, that, and I think I was telling you because people were angry with her in our church. People were furious because she had said, and she uses that line, you cannot be white and be a Christian. What, what it's caused me to think about is, I remember the first time I walked into St. Paul's Cathedral. So again, in my 30s, maybe even early 40s. And as I walked in, there was a, I don't remember when, it was pretty quick upon walking in, there was a, some kind of memorial or medallion or something to Winston Churchill. Um, and I, had point, I've been a, an Episcopal priest for at least 10 years, if not longer. I'm from India, we are Orthodox. I've become, I'm an Episcopalian in this country because of the communion, all these things. So I would never really thought about our connection to the UK. I live in New York City, right? Um, and I stood there and I had a visceral, like I had an old-fashioned Indian moment of what the hell is this doing in a church? I had a very angry, infuriated, like, you know, like I could see the millions of dead bodies in famine, right, kind of moment. And I was like, oh God, of course this is his church, these are his people, this is his place. I had not equated that with my faith in any way um, until that moment, which is, the hist- you know, which is these generations of things that are quite removed from me and about, but actually manifest in my church and its identity that, that Rowan Williams gets to write about the Trinity, and not about whiteness, unless I miss something, right? And that that's legitimate, and that's and that's profound, and our, our best minds, if they're white, can do that, um, and not address the this foundational crisis um, of of racism and of their own whiteness.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. I talk about um, St Paul's Cathedral um, in my. And St Paul's Cathedral is obviously one of those iconic buildings in um, London's landscape. But it's also got this kind of deeply flawed, uncomfortable history when it comes to race and empire. And I was speaking at an event a couple of years ago at St Paul's Cathedral, which was on um, race and the church. And it was one of those really amazing moments where there were hundreds of people in the cathedral, most of them white and an all black panel. And I, I did my talk and I planned, and I eventually did, I gave myself the kind of option of checking me out of doing this. But I sang a song um, in my native language of Igbo in the middle of the talk. Um, and it was one of the most, the most terrifying moments of my life, just singing a cappella to this cathedral full of um, people. But for me, it was <laughs> redemptive. Um, because what I was trying to do um, I'd been speaking about us as the church rethinking our approach to um, to black people within white spaces. Um, but for me there was something I sang on Ebo worship song with Ebo language um, mm. because I wanted to show that God is not an English person who speaks in English. Um, our, yeah. our worship styles, the way that we do church, are so wrapped up in this kind of notion of Englishness. So I was trying to kind of break through that by presenting something different. And I found that um, I was attempting to be redemptive in that space that had so much kind of difficult history.
2: That's amazing. I wonder if you'd be do one of two things, either sing it for us or a section of it or recite it for us um, in your native language.
0: Okay. Imela Imela Okaka only care you Imela Imela ezemo so Imela is, thank you, um, Onye Karua, it talks about basically great and mighty creator of uh, the world. Um, Ezimo is my king. So it's a real, it's a real worship song to God. And there's something about singing in, in my native language that I don't actually know that well, but feels really real to me in a way that singing worship in English doesn't.
2: Gosh, that's so powerful! It, um, hearing you sing that, it, it, it takes us into another space, um, it takes us into um, uh, just something deep and really rich. Thank you for having the courage to share that with us, and that's wonderful. I um, in in the book, you speak quite a bit about African spirituality as well, and you know um, I'm, I'm curious as to what was it that you learned and discovered. You spoke about having um some evangelical upbringing um what is it about african spirituality which has helped you to better connect with god and with faith and life
0: so for me i i guess like i write in that book about um how it's a real problem for the church for western churches if they present a god as male and white or you know have this kind of pervasive white supremacy and patriarchy because what we're finding is that a lot of black women are leaving out the back door because they're not going to stand for that for much longer because it's no longer okay um, for that to be the uh, dominant narrative that is spoken out at the front front of churches. So what we're finding is quite a lot of um, youngish black women are returning to um, African indigenous religions. Sometimes they do it alongside their Christianity but in um, African spiritualities, such as the Yoruba religion from West Africa or Ifa or Santera, um, you'll find in those religions female deities, and these are black women deities. So um, the black women are finding um, in those spiritualities themselves reflected back at them. And that is becoming increasingly attractive in contrast to churches that, um, that presents
1: God as white and male. Well, isn't it interesting how that happens in diaspora, so if we're, if we're abroad. So if I were to go back to India um, and go to a temple, uh, we have a great goddess tradition as well in Kerala, I would find that a fairly patriarchal space and maybe a little bit problematic for me in all kinds of ways, right? But I am very interested in the goddess traditions as a person living in New York City, interested in, in, in a raging brown goddess character from South India that predates the Marian traditions and that the Marian traditions have clearly adapted and adopted, taken on as Christians. Like I find that fascinating. It's a really creative place um, to think about my own spirituality. Do you find that that's is that is that at all um, is that at all parallel what's happening in, in what you're describing, or is it a return to a traditional understanding that actually
0: that is working for people? So I definitely think that it is um, the diaspora uh, millennials, um, millennial women, and. Some of it is around um, raising the profile of those religions in popular culture. So Beyonce's Lemonade and things like that, where um, we are kind of seeing those religions represented. But interestingly, I spoke to a friend um, earlier today, actually, who is an older um, black woman in uh, the Church of England. And she basically said, we were doing that. That was happening in the eighties. Like people were also, you know, Women were also returning to those religions, so and we. So I thought it all started with Beyonce. <laughs> we're kind of finding these new um practices, but really the stuff has been going on for a long time. And I think there is that interesting kind of interplay, isn't there, between that kind of idea of patriarchy in some of our kind of home countries, and um religious practice that elevates kind of female deities. But what is um uh, my great grandfather was um uh ordained in the Church of England in 1940 in Nigeria. So he was an Anglican priest. um, And he and my grandmother ran a school for Christian wives. Um, And so when women were about to get married, they would come and stay with my um, great-grandfather and great-grandmother and learn how to be good Christian wives. But what that meant really was learning how to bake cakes, drink tea using the right china, um, use kind of doilies and lace, and from you know uh, the kind of colonial understanding of christianity and anglicanism is so wrapped up with an um, englishness and whiteness and these things become synonymous so at those times they were um, when people were converting from um african spirit- spiritualities to christianity the african um spiritualities therefore became um sh- um frowned upon um, wanted to be hidden because that represented, um, that didn't represent God or the real God. Um, but I think we have lost a sense of ourselves by, by doing that.
1: So, um, to this, uh, the idea of whiteness and color, when our kids were little, um, it was during one of the months that we have in the US where, I think it's Black History Month, where you're just doing all this civil rights stuff and they were little, like, you know, six, seven years old. Um, and they were talking about how we were, they were learning about black people in school, but they didn't know any black people, um, and which I found really confusing um, because we live in New York City, and there's at least one child that was my fairy godchild. You know, like that. I I know that there's there are plenty of black people in their school and in their class, and so I asked them about it as you do with kids, like to figure out what, um, what was happening. And they started to describe the skin color of their room, of their buddies. They had friends that were pink and that were brown, and that were kind of golden colored, and that were different shades of brown, but they had never met anyone who was actually black, and they had assumed that what they were talking about in school were these human beings that were black, but they had never seen a human being that was black, is what they said, and they knew very, very dark-skinned people, including in my family. Um, So, and and I I think, I remember thinking, is is now the moment where I've got to make sure they understand what whiteness is? and what races and what power is it's like yeah or and they're six and seven and eating their cereal in the morning that might be a little bit too much but you tell a story that's a little bit like that
0: so my husband is um white um and actually when we were i remember when we were dating i would like grill him on like what if we have a child and then they say that they want to look like you and not like me um how are you gonna um handle it if we get some racist abuse in the streets? so i really grilled him because he he never had to think about race his whole life because i'm always constantly thinking about race um so we have a three-year-old boy and um he got obsessed with colors and um, when he was about two years old and you know obsessed with the colors of things and I asked him, um, what colour is mummy? And he said, brown. Okay, what colour is daddy? And he said, pink. Um, And then I said, what colour are you? And he said, grey. And he looked really sad. (laughs) And it reminded me of my kind of story of myself as five years old and drawing myself as a a white person. And my husband, the genius, uh, came up with this no, you're not grey, you're golden brown. And he looked so delighted um, with being golden brown. So he's now obsessed with being golden brown. And this idea, I love this kind of idea of goldenness um, and brownness and him being really delighted in the fact that he has got this special golden um, skin. And for us, um, for me, that really represented this and that's how God sees us as as brown, as brown people. It's not grey or brown or black or whatever um, that the world might want to put on us, which is a kind of, you know, this negative. But we, um, he is golden brown, made in God's image, loved by God, beautiful um, as he is.
2: Isn't that, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, um, because... The ideas of blackness and whiteness are, are, are constructed, you know, are, are made up. Have you seen spaces or have there been glimpses of what our world could look like if race, if, if, if there was equality and we became post-racial, you know, is, 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 that, is that a possibility? And what might that look like or taste like or feel like to actually enjoy our differences without there being the inequalities?
0: Yeah, so when my son was three or four months old, I took my sleep-deprived self and my baby to a baby cinema viewing of Black Panther. Um, and I had to kind of travel across London to find this this viewing. Because for me, um, I never even thought that I would... I, I never thought I needed a black superhero film. Um, but I wanted to really celebrate and the fact that my son lived in a world where there was a black superhero film. So I watched that, I cried. Obviously he was just three months old, so he doesn't really know what it's about. But um, and last summer we were, uh, we had a play date with some of my son's friends from nursery um, or kindergarten. And um, his best friend um, had brought these kind of action figures, superheroes um, that he had. And his friend is a white boy. And, and he gave my son, I think, Captain America or someone, um, and he gave out all the other ones to all the other ki- kids, but he would not let go of Black Panther because Black Panther was his favourite. Um, so this white boy um, loved Black Panther. And I think that for me is a glimpse of what the future could be, which is this place where it's not just um, a black boy that needs a black superhero, but a, a white boy loves a black black superhero because there's no longer this sense of difference and inequality. We're all this kind of wonderful mosaic melting pot of colours. That's why for.
2: Isn't that wonderful? And it's a world where your face can be in the cover of a book, and white women think, "Gosh, I want this book."
1: I remember one of my my aunts. Um, her son is quite dark skinned, and when he was in school in India. Um, he was being teased in school for his dark skin, um, and she had such a and, and she was heartbroken, you know, it's her, her baby boy, and so she told him he was purple. He told me this um, later, like Krishna, basically, like she kind of drew back into this, you know, way beyond. She's a Christian woman, right? And um, and he like he so embraced it that he told me this story in his twenties. He was like, I was pretty old before I realized I wasn't purple. <laughs> My mother had like because it matters so much what our mothers tell us, right? And our, our, his mother was just proud of him, didn't tell him he should be something else or different. Um, but it kind of gets to the, the point that you all are, we're all kind of a little bit going around This idea of whiteness and its power and what it takes to establish whiteness and to use it dominantly, differently than, be, than having pink skin, right, as your son says of his father. Um, and that, that critique, like the work that needs to be done to, to take that apart um, so that we literally can just be together. Um, tell us about yeah, that I think
0: your, your um, part of whiteness's power is the fact that white people don't notice it or we don't notice it because it is um someone described uh the default human um so it's only when you depart from that whiteness um that um there is either a problem or you're noticed um so I think that um, it's definitely whiteness is about the problem with whiteness is about its alignment with power, and so we in order for us to to make change, we need to spotlight whiteness and say this is what's whiteness whiteness this is what whiteness is, so we need to look at it and understand it, unpack it, and I know what an uncomfortable conversation that is going to be, and that is for white people to have to face their own. Um, whiteness um, and the potential defensiveness that comes with the sense that that you know yeah I'm white but I'm not a bad person um, and I didn't own slaves and my ancestors didn't own slaves and all this kind of defenses, defensiveness that comes with it we need to be able to have those conversations even though they're uncomfortable. This
2: has been such an incredible conversation Chinez I guess it's been such an honour to have you on I wonder are there any, um, is there anything else that you felt, oh, we should have had the opportunity to say? Now's your time?
0: No, it's been so great talking to both of you. I feel like if I start saying other things, we might start talking for hours and hours because there's so much that we could unpack, so I'm gonna stop there and say let's have it let's talk again another time.
1: I'm gonna ask a question anyway, and you don't have to answer it. Is is there an okay. image of God that sits with you right now?
0: Um the image of god that i still have is of a white man um and i've realized that you know it's going to take some unlearning to un- unsee the many 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 images that i've seen my whole life um of god so i'm working on it i'm trying to um uh, kind of think more about and read more about um black theology woman womanist theology that really changes my picture of who god is literally um and yeah so i'm trying to do that working on it so we'll be back next
2: month tell your friends about us rate and review um we love doing this so bye-bye from me thank you rosie dawson uh for producing us and uh thank you um Friends at Trinity Wall Street and Heart Edge for allowing this to happen. It's awesome.
1: Winnie, can you just say bye? Bye. <laughs> Do we want me to say more than that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Azariah, so good to be with you, Chiney. What an honour and what a profound conversation. Thank you. Azariah France Williams and Winnie Barguise were talking to Chine McDonald. Randolph Matthews composed the music. The Race was produced by me, Rosie Dawson. You'll find more episodes at heartedge.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave a comment, subscribe and share grace with your friends.